Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, the stories of two children with rare disorders and the battle for equality in the health system that could change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. It was an incredibly isolating experience. Sherilyn D is talking about the death of her baby Carson when he was just six months old. He died from an intracardiac fibroma, or a benign tumour within his heart, an extremely rare disorder. You know, you kind of go from living a normal life and then you're sent into this other world where... There's no support, there's really nobody that kind of understands because, you know, you are dealing with something so rare. Lizzie Haldane is like many 17-year-olds. Just ask her mum, Sue. A little bit stroppy, a little bit confronting, hugely annoying. I reclaim many of my belongings from her room, so that's, you know, so far so normal. But Lizzie has 22Q deletion syndrome, also a rare disorder with multiple health complications. You tell your story hundreds of times to different clinicians. Having a rare disorder is not so rare. Lizzie and Carson's conditions are among thousands of rare disorders. It's estimated 300,000 Kiwis have one. The trouble is, families and people with the disorders feel they are very alone. They want better diagnosis, access to drugs and support, all within the healthcare system. It's very frustrating, and I think New Zealanders would be shocked to learn how far behind we've fallen. But there's a push to change that with a petition to Parliament calling for a national rare disorders framework. And there's a meeting with the Health Minister, Andrew Little, next Monday. Sue Haldane is fronting the petition, but when I zoomed into her home earlier this week, she was grappling with something much more personal. Today was a whole new phase because she is turning 18 and we thought that she would have another year at school, but it's really coming apart at the seams really rapidly and it kind of came to a head today. Lizzie's left school a year earlier than hoped and the shift is complicated. On top of that, Sue also had to book her daughter into a private psychiatrist at $500 for her first visit because Lizzie is no longer entitled to care under community mental health services. You know, today has been um, Workbridge Day, Wins Day, you know, all that kind of <laughs> stuff, which signals a new phase of a lifelong condition. And um, and I was just reminded that this is, it's not static. You know, today, boy, yeah, ran straight into that one this morning. So, yeah, I'm fresh. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so what you thought that Lizzie had another year of school. Why doesn't she have another year of school? I'll just backtrack a little bit. Mm. Lizzie lives in the grey area, so she has no funding attached to her education. So she's not entitled to any in-classroom support. We were hoping to have an extra year for her to mature, but actually she's just finding it more and more difficult because any supports that that have been there have kind of withered away because by the time you're nearly 18, you, you should be, you know, you're almost functioning as an adult. But her maturity is nowhere near that of a of a typically developing 18-year-old. She needs a huge amount of hands-on um, support in the family, um, more like you would imagine a 10- or 12-year-old would need, not an 18-year-old. 
she is, we think, <laughs> a little bit biased, delightful, but she's wired differently. So she learns differently, very socially awkward and very lacking in confidence in the area because she simply misses a lot of the cues. We we still hold hands when we cross the road. Gosh, it's it's really complicated. And this this is twenty two Q deletion syndrome. It's inc- so catchy, isn't it? I mean, I can't imagine why it's not on everyone's lips, really. <laughs> yeah, why why is it called twenty two Q deletion syndrome, or previously known as velocardiofacial syndrome? Yes, and a few other things as well. So Lizzie was born in 2003, and this was still a fairly recently described condition. And like a lot of these things, it was being worked on in pieces by different uh, scientists, and it took a while to to join the dots. So one of the challenges has been that it's had two or three different names. So 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome is a description of the where the micro deletion occurs on the chromosome. So it's on the 22nd chromosome. It's on the long arm, the Q arm of the chromosome, and the other numbers tell you exactly where it is on that long arm. So there you go, short version. But it is a complex condition. It's a very complex condition. As far as we know, it has 180 plus anomalies associated with it no one person ends up with the same combination but there are threads um, that run through it so 75 percent of people with 22q deletion will have a a heart condition of some kind Um, some like lizzie's potentially catastrophic and others will be you know a murmur that, that may not be picked up all of them have uh, learning disabilities of some kind. MRIs show that their brain is actually, it, it looks different um, from a typically developing human. And um, so we know a lot of scientific stuff about it, but how that affects them in their day-to-day life can be very, very complicated. I mean, we can have 12 different medical specialties on the go at any one time. And that doesn't include, obviously, social and educational issues that we have. So complicated wow. stuff. Twelve. Twelve different medical... Yeah, up to twelve. Jeepers. <laughs> what kind of support do you get? There, there is no support per se. We basically attack each specialty one at a time. So... You work through a specialty through the through the health system at the moment, and then you continue to be treated in that particular silo, or you're signed off out of that silo. And then, and then when you need to address another issue, you start again, and you you get a referral, and you go through the same process all over again. So you tell your story hundreds of times to different um, clinicians. So, what difference would a national framework make? to your lives and to Lizzie? My dream is that instead of placing the onus on the people who live with the conditions and on their families, that there is some kind of system that exists. And and we're just talking about health at the moment, but actually our lives tap into three or four different ministries at any one time, you know, Ministry of Social Development and Ministry of Education and so on. Mm. So I guess what we are looking for is some kind of cohesion of services. In theory, with your NHI, 
you know, all your medical information is available to every um, clinician that you see, but that appears not to be the practice. I'm trying to imagine what it is, is that if you are diagnosed with a condition like this, and we understand in a holistic way the um, challenges that a person is likely to to meet, that there is a care plan which is put in place at a really early time so that the responsibility is not 100% on the family. I mean, obviously, we're all responsible for our children, but that there is some kind of coordination of services so that I don't have to be a medical detective and actually find a service which will be able to help Lizzie. When I was 34 weeks pregnant, my waters broke prematurely. I actually had no idea that there was anything, you know, different about him. I went for a scan at Christchurch Hospital and they discovered that he had a large tumour in his heart. Sherilyn Dee tells Carson's story because she wants things to be different for others born with rare disorders. So my life changed very quickly and I was quickly airlifted to Starship Hospital. They didn't think that he would survive birth, but actually he did pretty well considering, you know, what was expected. And when did you actually find out what this tumour was exactly? Probably wasn't until he was about three and a half months old that we actually found out their best guess of what they thought it was at that time. But up until that point, there was a lot of guesswork and um, other things going on. So was he unwell? To look at him, you actually wouldn't know that he was unwell. He actually lived quite a normal three and a half months of his, his life in terms of he came home and we had quite a normal experience. But the risk with his condition is that the tumour would grow and then kind of it would block the ventricle in his heart and then obviously he would go into some form of cardiac arrest. And at three and a half months old, that's when they did an MRI scan, which is when they told us that they thought that surgery would be the only option, otherwise he wouldn't live until he was one. You were told that no one had seen this condition worldwide. We were told that very early on um, after he was born and I think the hospital referred to Melbourne that maybe they had been in touch with but they were quite explicit that this was kind of a very individual case and you know there wasn't anybody else that was aware of anything like this. And so did you not get any kind of treatment initially? There wasn't any treatment available in New Zealand and we were not aware of any other options available to us so we just trusted what we were told. There would have been other um, intermittent steps taken if I was in a different country for example but because I was in New Zealand the access and knowledge base that we had was very limited. Worldwide, there are only 200 known cases of intracardiac fibroma. That made it difficult to get information, and Sherilyn believes it led to ad hoc decisions and fateful errors. When I was pregnant with Carson, initially the hospital had said that there was nothing that they could do, and so we would be sent home to Christchurch for palliative care because they didn't think Carson would survive birth. And it was only in us contacting somebody that had a limited um, amount of um, information about, you know, heart tumours, 
from Australia that we were actually able to get the hospital to reconsider allowing us to actually give birth in Auckland and, you know, actually, um, I guess, advocating for him to, you know, have treatment rather than kind of them, you know, say they're not going to do anything. So he had surgery. Mm. What happened? After the MRI scan, um, we were told that if he was to get a cold or a cough or something, you know, he'd become, he could become quite unwell quite quickly and collapse. So we felt under a massive amount of pressure to actually have the surgery and we were very frightened. So he had the surgery probably about four and a half months old. It was a 12-hour open heart surgery. Again, in his time after the um, surgery, the care plan was very ad hoc. He actually suffered um, three cardiac arrests during that time and he died, um, yeah, six weeks after being in intensive care. Do you believe he would have lived longer if there was a national rare disorder framework in place? Definitively, I can say yes on on that. And the reason for that is um, because there are people in the world that successfully are treating this condition. For example, there is a hospital in the US that has been treating this condition for, I think, at least 20 years, and they have a 100% success rate. And that is because they, you know, they have that experience and they have that um, knowledge base. The cases that have been treated successfully, are they living normal lives? Most of the children that have had surgery, um, and I am connected to many of them in the world now, most of them live actually quite normal lives after having the tumour resected. Yeah, the tumours are not cancerous or anything like that. They're more of just an obstruction. So if you get the right skill base and you get that knowledge and expertise then the prognosis is so much better. With this condition, the older you are, the better the prognosis or outcome. And, you know, Carson didn't have access to some of those things. Like in the UK, they would fit children with a defibrillator so that kind of if they went into an abnormal heart rhythm, then obviously there's something to mitigate that. Can you explain to me, Sherilyn, how would a framework, a national framework have made a difference? You know, it's not just the experience for the child. I think specifically for Carson, it would have led to um, there not being this kind of ad hoc approach. I believe Carson's uh, case was considered in isolation rather than actually connecting with people that had that knowledge, you know, the information that we needed to make, you know, the best choice for our child. New Zealand actually doesn't define rare disorders, so there's very little data, no register of people with the conditions, no actual policy. And that's behind the push for a national rare disorder framework. Lisa Foster heads Rare Disorders New Zealand. One, it would give a central place to have a look at the barriers. So there's barriers at every turn, unfortunately. What do you mean by barriers? Um, The barriers would be around uh, gaining a diagnosis, getting access to medicine, not fitting a box for criteria that um, doesn't acknowledge the complexity and the rareness of your disorder. 
We've got seven different parts that we've proposed, and one is diagnosis. Diagnosis can lead to information and education and a reduced down associated suffering for that family. Mm. Yeah. Can, I, I mean, I can't, I don't even know what a framework is. I mean, this sounds really stupid, but it, you're saying you need to be part of yes. the health system. So a framework is just like a blueprint looking and addressing the particular specific challenges for that group. And this is already, it's a very easy solution because other countries are way down the track, 20 years down the track in some cases, as with Taiwan. Um, So they have all the solutions in place. Um, We could have a look at Australia's framework for rare diseases and we could have a look at how they have implemented some actions that are creating some real positive change So would it mean that people with uh, rare disorders would have more access to subsidised drugs, that kind of thing? That's one of our areas of priority and the the result we would like to look at is alternative pathways for innovative modern medicines and those for rare disorders. So any modern medicine is going to be more expensive. And if it's for a small population, there's a challenge. Um, And I think there, again, there are solutions being discussed um, internationally, globally. It would be great to get New Zealand on the train, so to speak, um, and have some more conversations around what some of those solutions might be. Does the ministry even recognise this as an area of need? It's not clearly recognised within policies. Uh, There is no um, set policy that recognises people with rare disorders in New Zealand. It's very frustrating, and I think New Zealanders would be shocked to learn how far behind we have fallen. The focus on the pandemic in the last year, that can't have been good for you. I think it um, emphasised the vulnerability of our collective, you know, the issue that that you've raised uh, around invisibility. So if you're invisible as a collective and then you're invisible as an individual and you have a vulnerability to COVID and you've got a complex rare disorder, it's extremely scary and isolating for you. So I think it's emphasised the need for some action. So I hope that that also is going to be um, met positively in in our meeting with Minister Little that's coming up soon. Probably a year after Carson died, um, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's actually interesting because many of the the difficulties I have are not necessarily focused around Carson, you know, passing away. I mean, that's really challenging, of course. But it's more about the fact that nobody really listens to you. So, like, you know, when you're talking to the doctors and you're trying to access information and you're trying to kind of, you know, ask questions, sometimes it feels like your opinion doesn't actually matter because you're not a doctor. So one of the biggest things I struggle with is not being heard or or feeling like I wasn't able to advocate enough for my child because I didn't have the information that I needed. You are questioned constantly as a parent as to whether you're actually seeing what you think you're saying. You know, I have been called neurotic. I'm I'm popular because of my persistence and following um, treatments for Lizzie. But the outcomes, you know, Lizzie's general health 
and well-being is better than it might have been because of that. Yeah, you're assertive. Yes, thank you. Understatement. (laughs) (laughs) I am tenacious. Um, But it comes with costs. Psychological and emotional costs um, comes with the cost of time. In order to be able to um, care for your child with that kind of complexity, um, working outside the home became impossible. You know, the impact on a family is is often immeasurable, and I think the impact on women in particular, because, you know, um, caring for families is is still a fairly gendered, you know, proposition. It has changed my life out of all recognition, and, um, you know, and and large parts of that are for the better, but the exhaustion, also that sense of becoming someone that that you have no desire to be. You know, I don't want to be that bull terrier mother who savages clinicians until she gets the care for her child. You know, no one, no one sets out in life wanting to be that. You say you've never had the luxury of simply being Lizzie's mum. You're her advocate, her medical officer, her education director, her social worker, her therapist, her nutritionist, her dietitian, work placement officer and retirement planner. Yes, I am. <laughs> yes. I'm a multitasker. You'll hear from all parents with, with children outside of the box that no one just gets to be mum. You're actually fronting this Rare Disorders New Zealand collective petition to Parliament. Are you confident that you're going to get the signatures and and start the change that's needed? I'm not confident, but I'm hopeful. We need to consider that there are um, large groups in our population that have no voice and you know it's time to hear what the voices have to say. I'm really hopeful I think the process has been absolutely worth it very nerve-wracking but worth it. I I just hope that someone will hear. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Sherilyn D, Sue Haldane, and Lisa Foster. Kakite Arnold.